0: So what is the new mission of Facebook? Our society is still very divided. So our new mission is to bring the world closer together.
1: Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge
2: Analytica scandal. It has all the hallmarks of a spy thriller. A Cambridge scientist invents a new method of political mind control... A secretive agency in London, run by an old Etonian called Alexander Nix, weaponizes the research and sells its services to the highest bidder. Our personal secrets, hoarded by Silicon Valley, are used against us to target our deepest fears and manipulate us. A new generation of populists and strongmen are swept into power. Only a plucky journalist called Carol can stop them. By now, lots of us have heard at least part of the story of the Facebook election scandal – Cambridge Analytica, the company in the eye of the storm, has closed its doors and is under investigation. But how effective were its methods? Can psychographic micro-targeting
3: really swing elections and referendums? You're listening to Polarise. I hope you're already impressed by the fact that Ian's able to say the phrase psychographic micro right I can't see, I can't do it. See, it's that's not that's easy. how impressive it is. <laughs> um, uh, this is a podcast from the RSA. We're trying to understand the forces driving us further apart and what can be done about them. It's presented by Ian Leslie and by Matthew Taylor. As always, uh, the podcast, our podcast, Polarised, it it isn't actually about orchestrating an argument between people with opposing views. Lots of opportunities to listen to that kind of thing. But but we're about understanding the polarising political moment we're living through right now. More about light than heat. In this episode, we're taking you inside Silicon Valley's persuasion machine. But before we get stuck into the big questions you've posed, Ian, the story, it's a complicated one. It's about psychology, social media, safety of our information, political advertising, the murky world of highly paid political consultants. For anyone who doesn't know the full story or hasn't gone into it in depth, can you just explain to our listeners, from the beginning, where does this story start? Okay, so this
2: story goes back a long, long way all the way back to 2015, when a researcher at Cambridge University, a psychologist, uh, came up with a way of matching people's personality profiles to their behaviour on Facebook. Personality psychologists use the simple model of personality called the sometimes called the ocean model it's an acronym they say there are kind of five well-established traits that are pretty much stable throughout your lifetime everybody is somewhere on the spectrum on on all of them so agreeableness
0: item one a cheery disposition
1: i am never cross
2: neuroticism
1: i am not here for rage i'm here for revenge excuse me (laughs) am i talking to you pinhead am
2: i openness to new experiences I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father.
0: Extroversion. I'm going to show you how great I am.
2: And conscientiousness.
0: You must be kind. I am kind, but extremely firm.
3: So that's the kind of personality model that these guys work so with. Can I just yeah. Uh, yeah, interrupt for a sec? You see, I'm I, I immediately going, well, hang on. I'm agreeable some days and I'm not agreeable other days. I, I, I but, the, but the psychologists say there is a kind of baseline agreeableness to me.
2: Yeah, so so they're not, they're not saying that you are always one of these things that they're just saying you will spend more time being agreeable on average over your lifetime right. than people who are you know yep. um so it's look i mean it's a very broad brush very kind of simple rough guide to to uh personality and some people question its value you know how much is it? Is it really telling you but it is kind of fairly well, well agreed on well established um in psychology so somebody came up with a way of profiling you on that model based on your, on what you're liking on Facebook. So you know, users who liked the Hello Kitty brand tended to be high on openness and low on conscientiousness, um, that kind of thing. Uh, I really don't want to believe this. But <laughs> go on, go on. And the way that they're. they're come to this conclusion was deploying an app on Facebook and once people opted in, the app assessed their personality traits via a quiz Do you work hard?
4: Do you experience your emotions intensely? Do you have a lot of fun? Do you radiate joy? Do you sympathise with the homeless? Do you believe that others have
2: good intentions? Do you like poetry?
4: Do you dislike yourself?
2: Do you panic easily? Do you fear for the worst?
4: Do you yell at people? Do you love a good fight?
0: Do you believe there's no absolute right or wrong?
2: Do you go go on binges?
3: Do you enjoy wild flights of fantasy? Do you tell the truth? Do you get angry easily?
2: Do you believe that you're better than others? Do
1: you dislike
0: change? Are you afraid of many things?
3: And then
2: it correlated those answers with things that they liked, liked in inverted commas as you do on Facebook. So another psychologist came along, uh, another academic at Cambridge, uh, copied and sold that data to the company that would spawn Cambridge Analytica. And at the time, Facebook allowed apps to collect data on users' friends as well. So they ended up with data on 87 million people.
1: Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge
2: Analytica. Now, it sounds kind of horrific and they'll, it sounds slightly less horrific when you think that this is going on all the time. This is basically how the internet works the the ad-driven internet so you know companies commercial companies are picking up data on on you uh via cookies all the time and it's you know very straightforward for them to to profile you uh your your personality on that basis uh uh, with this kind of similar technique whether or not they do so is another question because we don't know really how useful this, this stuff
3: is because It's been used as much by unsuccessful politicians as successful politicians. Okay, I mean, we, yeah, we're so, obsessed by Trump, but we don't talk much about Ted Cruz
2: ex- exactly, or indeed, you know, Hillary Clinton, who invested a great deal of uh, money in, in micro targeting. Whether or not she did psychographic micro targeting, I'm not sure, but um, so so that is the next question, actually, right? So, so this is a, a, a technique that 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 can be used, commercial companies probably use it to some extent. Uh, is it useful and specifically does it really work in a political context it's much much more likely i think that that micro targeted ads reinforce what people already believe um th- there's it's but very problem, it?
3: but i mean that's uh, that's uh, something uh, yeah. y- y- later on i think i'll be talking about some interesting research about the way in which people are convinced by arguments, if, uh, uh, when they believe passionately, so, so the, the very process of reinforcing people's beliefs is kind of problematic, isn't it?
2: I, I agree, but then, the, but then, the what you most often hear about Cambridge Analytica and similar kind of phenomena like this is. There's this giant sort of invisible force out there, which is changing people's minds, which is persuading people to vote for uh, a certain candidate or vote a certain referendum. So it's kind of mind control, right? This has been a fear of of people for, for sort of 60, 70 years. I think The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard was like 1957 or something like that. People have always thought that that, that advertisers, commercial advertisers, and, and now sort of political advertisers somehow can control what we think. Now, I think the evidence is very sparse on that on that point. We can, they can influence us in 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 different ways, but I, I think actually changing people's minds, particularly in politics, is incredibly hard. And actually, overall, there's no evidence that any political campaigning changes anybody anybody's mind. Um, somebody recently did a, a meta analysis of I think sort of 49 different studies in, in America. On the effectiveness of political campaigning, and they found an, an effect of close to zero. So it's not just that the, the you know micro targeting on on Facebook is is unlikely to to change people's minds. Is that all political campaigning uh, is basically? Uh, wouldn't say it's a waste of time, but well, it's close to a waste of time.
3: So Ian, before you before you kind of completely destroy the basis of the program, which is to explore micro targeting and its impact uh, on us, I think we should we should ch- try to get a perspective from somebody who maybe maybe is slightly less sceptical about its effectiveness uh, uh, than you and and thinking about how it could be used uh, in the UK uh, as a method. So last week, our producer, James, spoke to the research director of the Online Privacy Foundation, Chris Sumner.
1: We ran five studies that looked at why people differed psychologically Then we looked at how you could target these different groups based on information known about their Facebook interests. Then we looked at how effective that targeting actually was. And then we ran a proof of concept with those ads. What we wanted to look at was, is there a potential that this kind of approach is actually effective in some way? And should we be concerned about it? Very briefly, what did you do? The statement we presented folks with was the nothing to hide, nothing to fear statement um, in terms of, you know, online communication, surveillance and privacy. Do you agree with the, you know, essentially the nothing to hide, nothing to fear argument, you know, agree or or disagree? The traits that we were interested in because they come up time and time again, at least in political research, is the traits associated with authoritarianism and largely in terms of Big Five personality—that would be uh, the traits of openness and conscientiousness.
0: So, so the Big Five. This is a, a kind of commonly used psychological survey or or test. In your research, did you do one of those surveys as well, and then match that to to Facebook likes?
1: We'd looked at the research. I think from Cambridge, um, you know, they'd looked at uh, the the like likes and personality, and had distilled. Okay, what what likes does somebody who um, is lower in authoritarianism versus somebody in higher authoritarianism what they like so you could say that you know somebody who reads the uh, the daily mail is more likely to be higher in authoritarianism the work that the folks at cambridge did went to a much more granular level where you could see for example you know what sort of films you like what that says about your personality so for myself for example i really like the film uh, top gun <laughs> and that that then raised a question mark of well Am I more conservative because I guess of the, the you know, the military association with the film <laughs> versus, you know, uh, other factors.
0: On that question of of surveillance, if you know that someone is an
1: authoritarian, what message would you target to them? We split the group into high and low authoritarianism and then pro and anti-surveillance. And for the group that are high authoritarian And we wanted to, if you like, increase the interest in uh, surveillance technology. Then we we presented an image of uh, essentially the the 9-11 Ground Zero site. Hmm. And we had the tagline of terrorists, don't let them hide online. For the flip side of that, where we wanted to see what messages uh, actually work on swaying them in a different direction we used uh, an image of the uh, the D-Day landings with the tagline, they fought for your freedom, don't give it away.
0: What did you find out about the effectiveness of of using that profile to come up with different tailored messages for different audiences?
1: We saw agreement drop from 36% to 25% in the low authoritarian group. But for the high authoritarian group, we saw that almost double really from uh thirty six percent to to uh, to sixty one percent level of agreement it worked effectively um possibly more so than i'd thought and uh,
0: so so since the the Cambridge analytica story came out, of course there's been swathes of media coverage about it, and then there's been a backlash, and some people have said actually what they did wasn't very effective it was junk science i I just wondered what you
1: thought about that that sort of reaction to it. We, you know, we looked at how effective it could be, but what we don't have insight into is, well, what, what did they actually do and was it effective mm. for them that I don't know, but yeah, there's also been some comments and you just touched on that, you know, saying that this sort of technique doesn't work and it's just sort of snake oil. Well, you know, there are at least three studies that have, uh, have looked at just the ad targeting, and all have found broadly similar sorts of results. There are a few researchers who have, who have said, well, the effectiveness isn't that great. I think that is very valuable because it, it actually does poke some questions at the research, and that's how science kind of grows.
0: Thank you so much for,
3: uh, for talking to me. Sure, no problem. It's been a pleasure. So, uh, uh, Ian, I've listened to that. You, you, you're a sceptic. I'm quite, I'm quite convinced. I mean, he's just showed a couple of photographs to these people and massively polarised their, their opinions.
2: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more sceptical. Look, his point about Top Gun just sort of reveals the, 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 the difficulty of reading people's personalities from from what they like. The idea that if you really, really like Top Gun, you're probably a more conservative person. Uh, is going to be news to (laughs) millions of millions of people Uh, you know it's you can do this stuff in a kind of very big broad simplistic way and you say okay if you are a person who is high on neuroticism or or low in agreeables will you are you more likely to to click on this ad for something yeah okay maybe we maybe that person is there's a world of difference between that and and saying that you can persuade somebody of, of a different point of view or get them to vote in a certain, uh, certain way.
3: But isn't, um, isn't the point there that the, the process of reinforcing an existing position is much easier than the process of challenging an existing position? So I, I, maybe you agree with Chris, because what you're saying is it's very hard for this stuff to change people's minds. I, I think that's probably right. But it's not hard for this stuff to take people from a kind of seven out of ten conviction to a nine out of ten conviction that they're right, and given our concern about polarization, that's the problem isn't it
2: yeah no, i i am I'm wary of attributing any real world effect to to this stuff however, if there is some, I think it's much more likely to be on uh, yeah kind of turnout motivation, getting people already on your side to actually I think one of the ways it might be working is sort of social proof. So, say, say you have an opinion that you think that, that you know is pretty verboten in, in public, sort of unpolitically correct, right? Opinion about, it. and then you see uh, lots of stuff, you know, on your Facebook timeline saying, yeah, you know, you're you're right to think that all immigrants are are you know terrorists then that makes you more likely to express your point of view and that makes others more likely to to express it and the whole thing kind of becomes kind of shifts the barrier of what you can and, and cannot say so i think this kind of stuff can influence the discourse right and make it more polarized and i think that's what the russian kind of strategy is i didn't i don't think they set out to elect trump i don't think they set out to persuade people to vote for trump versus hillary clinton it's not what they're doing Um, They have ended up with with Trump by accident almost. What they're trying to do is poison and and polarise the politics of Western democracies. To help us get our heads around the political implications of online campaigning, we're joined by Martin Moore, Director of the Centre for the Study of Media, Communication and Power at King's College London.
3: What a great name for a centre, Media, <laughs> Communication and Power. That's, that's good.
4: Causes lots of uh, angst, I can tell you, amongst the academic community. <laughs> Using the word power is a very difficult word to use in academia.
2: Oh. Here's Martin's book, Democracy Hacked, Political Turmoil and Information Warfare in the Digital Age, will be published later this year. Hello, Martin. Good morning. So let's start with Cambridge Analytica. It's it's hard to know exactly what was going on here, but... but... In your view, was the psychological or psychographic profiling that they, that they did, was it likely to be effective?
3: Just so you know, because I, you, know, you know the context of this, we're already disagreeing about this. I'm tending to think it is quite effective. And just, I just want you to know that you're, you'll be <laughs> siding on. with one of us from the outside. <laughs> it's polarizing. It is polarizing. Uh,
4: what is effective is understanding an awful lot about an individual um, and tailoring your message and your communication uh, to what you know about that individual. Um, and I think personality and you know the psychographics and the ocean, et cetera, is an aspect of that, which is potentially, I think, a re- critical aspect. I think at the moment it's very difficult to find out both how much they used it, um, how effective it was, um, if, if they used it in, at all in, in some cases. Um, but I think to dismiss the idea that we can uh, the campaigns and candidates can better influence voters, and particularly, uh, I'm talking about behavioural influence by knowing much more about them. Would be would be very naive.
3: I'm just writing that down. Very naive. That's cool. uh, <laughs> strong words, Ian. Very strong words. Um, so w- the
2: behavioural influence. T- tell me more about that. What what behaviours are they?
4: Well, so I think I think
2: one of the things that people
4: misunderstand about the use of digital campaigning and particularly of micro-targeting is that they they, they assume that we're talking really about persuading uh, voters to vote a certain way or to even change their opinion or to change their vote. That's that's not really the purpose behind it. Ah. The purpose behind it is much more behavioral. And by that, I mean, you are prodding or prompting someone to, to, to respond. Um, now, that response can either be uh, fundraising so you might be just looking for to, to raise some money it might be trying to um uh, uh bring them on board in terms of as a volunteer or or simply as a follower uh, if you're a twitter follower or a facebook follower or it might be prodding them to to go out and vote and i think that's that's the key is 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 how it evokes a behavioral response rather than actually persuading someone to do something
2: okay
3: this, so no, can we, that's really interesting so this is more about mobilisation than it is about opinion. Exactly. And we were just talking about this that, that it then I guess it then creates a reinforcing effect because the point at which you turn your opinions into a donation then turns you into somebody who self identifies as the kind of person who doesn't just believe something but does something about it.
4: Exactly. Exactly. And that's and that's exactly what we've seen with and not just you know in, in, in um, elections but across the world where you see people. Got what's called this, you know, step ladder of participation. So, so in in you know in Egypt in 2011, you know, people. It wasn't that Facebook caused the revolution. It was that. Facebook was an incredibly accessible avenue for people to participate. And the, f- and the first step was normally simply watching a video on Facebook. The second step was liking or sharing something. And then the third step was joining a group, et cetera. And gradually they stepped up this ladder of participation until eventually they walked out their front door and walked to Tahrir Square. And it's exactly the same way in elections. You, you, you get people to, 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 to retweet something or share something, and suddenly they're invested somehow. And then you, you, you
2: shift them up the ladder. Okay, so so let's talk about how this affects our our politics because it's quite interesting. You've got two kind of two m- what models there can be used used for for good and for evil, right? To put it very simplistically, right. So on the one hand, arguably it helps that kind of bottom up grassroots uh, uh, activism that that you saw during the Arab Spring. On the other hand, once big uh, institutions get hold of it, like political parties or or people with lots of money um it can work as a kind of more of a kind of top-down mechanism to persuade people at scale uh, or to activate people at scale so where do you see things things heading is this kind of is this going to uh, open a new era of uh, grassroots activism or or is it really going to be used as a tool for power and control
4: both both i mean i think i think this is the classic thing it's been going on for for many, many years, money versus people. Um, and traditionally, you get people associated with the left and money associated with the right, although I think that's much more fluid now. But I think that we will see, we will see both in the future, and we already are seeing both. And um, it, it feels quite chaotic at the moment for that reason. I think we should remember it was only two decades ago that... Um, you know we were we were all talking about um, the disengagement from politics and lamenting the fact that Robert Putnam bowling alone, et cetera. We were lamenting the fact that people were disengaging from politics. so I think you're right to say that you know, in some ways this is a very hopeful and positive uh, development because more people are engaged and more people are active but the, the, I think the, the, one of the issues we have at the moment is the systems the digital systems i am talking about, the, the platforms particularly, are structured in such a way that makes them highly vulnerable both to uh, to gaming by motivated individuals and to, um, uh, to, to to use and misuse by very powerful parties, corporations, moneyed interests, et cetera.
2: I also think the, the other role it plays is the role that all media plays, which is less about persuasion or, or, or even motivation. It's more about a gender setting. So what are the things that we are arguing about or feeling strongly about today? What are we talking about? actually that's the kind of the real role of uh, you know mainstream media like like the bbc or the times the guardian and i think it's now kind of playing out on on facebook
4: absolutely and and we see that in the way people you know flock towards one direction or another and i think the, the part of the problem is that again coming back to i suppose to polarization is that um, that we know uh, from from research that once something gains some momentum in terms of its 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 um, popularity and uh, the number of people talking about it, then it snowballs, um, and and that's I think particularly what you see in the relationship between mainstream media and and, and social media. When we were looking at uh, the election in twenty seventeen and twenty fifteen, you'd watch a story sort of emerge nascently on social media, and then it would jump to mainstream media and become much bigger on social media and then it shifts back to social media again and morph in different ways and and there's this 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 curious interrelationship between the two which i think means that you do get um agenda setting roles but you also get a sort of um a longer longer trajectory funnily enough um for lots of those stories um because because they keep going in waves and cycles through mainstream media and social media
3: i think this interaction between mainstream media and social media is 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 fascinating i I was a An event last night. Daniel Trilling was talking about his book about uh, about refugees, and he was talking about the 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 famous picture of the 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 boy on the beach that mobilised so much opinion. And that was put out there by some Turkish journalists who kind of refused the the pictures like that. You know, taken all the time, and they're usually suppressed. But they said, "No, this has got to be public." But it still hadn't really taken off. But then a couple of very prominent Twitter uh users with you know hundreds of thousands millions of followers then retweeted it and then of course it exploded so that's that kind of it's the capacity of social media to immediately pick up on something in the mainstream media that drives it then viral i guess
4: absolutely and when and when you look at research with young people who who, when when you ask them what they uh, what stories they follow or how they pick things up the remarkable influence of of individuals um, where previously it would have been Uh, a a news outlet or a particular um, uh, news program. Now it'll be individuals on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is talking about it and because they follow that individual and millions of others do that then becomes their agenda. That then becomes the story that they think is the most important story of the day.
2: Okay. So uh, to close, overall are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to the influence of social media on politics?
4: uh, I'm... (laughs) I'm I'm struggling to be an optimist. Uh, I, I have to say... Actually, You're a pessimist. Okay, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I think we're going through a period of, of really... I think we've, we we've still have to come to terms with the enormity of the transition we're going through. I think we're going through this huge, huge change. And actually, we're kind of in the middle of it right at the moment. So we can't see where we're going to end up. I think at the moment, my, my worry is that there's such confusion uh, and such such anxiety that actually we're going to do things that, that, that actually we shoot ourselves in the foot. We, we cause ourselves more harm than good.
2: Martin Moore thank you very much
4: thank you
3: So you know, I I I thought, I thought Martin was absolutely fascinating but um I'm also interested if you if you take this a bit more widely uh, the, the the kind of techniques that we're talking about um you can do the machine learning a b testing these kind of ways of targeting and personalizing messages I and mean, aren't just used by you know political campaigns they're used by people trying to sell us garden sheds the R- rsa published some work a few days ago about ai and ethics and one of the questions we asked people was how they felt about ai being used to flog them things and and in on balance people didn't like the idea and I, do you think it's effective? Because I think if it is effective, if we have moved beyond that world, famously summed up, I think, by John Wanamaker, the first person to open a department store in America, who said, "I, you know, I know that fifty percent of marketing works. The problem is, I don't know which fifty percent it is." Have we moved beyond that world into a world where advertisers know much more about what is effective?
2: Um, we keep thinking that we're about to move beyond that world, but we keep realizing that that, that we. So, so um, for those that don't know, I, I also work in advertising as as well as in. Big pod, and one of the interesting things about what's happened in the last 10, 20 years is that we keep thinking, "Well, now we've got all this data on people, we'll get much better at persuading them to to buy what we want them to buy." Um, and it hasn't worked out like that. First of all, having a huge amount of data is not the same as having kind of some real insight into what motivates someone or, or, or how they think or, or feel. And second of all, it's really hard to to come up with something that's actually going to uh, going to motivate them. So, so you can say, I have data on this person. I understand them, and therefore, I'm going to write an ad that that, that appeals to them. That's, that first bit is dubious the second bit is really 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 hard i think what it does is it's effective at in the last mile if you like so if you're already in the market for something mentally you're alert thinking about it i'd quite like to get a something and then an ad pops up um and it kind of directs you to okay well that that that's quite useful what it doesn't really do is kind of influence the uh, the fame, inf- the cultural salience of a brand, right? So the fact that I feel, have certain feelings about McDonald's, right? Everyone knows McDonald's, but you'll have some kind of uh, emotional kind of affinity with it. You can't do
3: that online. So it, 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 there seems to therefore be a kind of consistency to what we're saying here, which is that this stuff is, is pretty good if you're kind of on the edge of the cliff thinking about jumping off. Yeah, it's quite good exactly. about getting you to jump. Yeah, But if you're nowhere near the cliff... You know, if you're sitting in the cafe, it's not going to get you off your feet and walking towards the edge of the cliff.
2: Before we go, in each episode, we are going to recommend something uh, provocative Uh, and interesting that that we've read. It'll often be something that that isn't uh, sort of top of your news news feed, something we've dug up from somewhere, um, but just something that that kind of shifts the way that we look at the world of politics. It'll quite often be from the social sciences, as is the case uh, this week
3: so yeah the, the thing that's fascinated me this week and uh you know Ian, it's only fair to say that the reason i'm aware of this is because it was in your excellent uh newsletter i am oh. by the way i'm currently in a kind of gdpr honeymoon which is i've i've, I've re- refused to subscribe to so many things like that almost everything arriving on my inbox i actually want to read you know I and mean, this, <laughs> this will last for about three weeks of course but nevertheless please, please. reading your wonderful newsletter i came across this this uh piece of work by um a couple of cognitive scientists uh, Matthew Fisher and Frank Keel uh, at Yale uh, and what they looked at was the way in which people's conviction about their opinion influences the degree to which they think that their argument is a strong argument so basically what they what they showed was that if you if you believe you're right about something you also exaggerate the degree to which you are effectively arguing the case for that thing now the only thing that overcomes this is being forced to listen to alternative views this is the only thing that then makes you be a bit more realistic about how convincing you are so I just want to tell you why I love this research I loved it because uh, I'm doing my annual lecture in a a few weeks time for the RSA on deliberative democracy and and this was helpful to me too is first of all I'm obsessed by deliberative democracy so I will stop random people in the street now and tell them about how important deliberative democracy is so first of all I thought hold on be a bit careful because maybe you've fallen into this trap that you think your arguments are completely compelling, but that's just because you're obsessed by this issue. Secondly, it did reinforce migrants, because the point about deliberative democracy as a methodology things like citizens' juries is it does get the participants to listen to both sides of the argument. So this research really reinforces the fact that Political engagement is of a completely different order. People are required to listen to views that they know they don't want to hear. A current theme for us in these programs, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm very much agree with that. And I thought one of the interesting things that this made me think about something I, I quite often think about, which is uh, the the difference between. Uh, knowing about something and caring about it, and how the two are actually sort of almost antithetical to, to one another in, in in some ways. That is, if you know very little about an issue, um, say uh, say immigration, then it's it's really easy to take a very kind of simplistic, passionate, angry stance on that and say, look, you know, immigration is really bad. We need to we need to stop it. Um, once you start knowing more about it you think well okay so it seems that some immigration is bad some immigration is good and basically the whole temperature of your 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 kind of attitude to it lowers now if you know a huge amount about one issue um, you can become almost paralysed. You can't take a position anymore because you can see all the sides at once. So you need some people, kind of, you know, there's some sort of happy medium here. At the moment, I think we've got this kind of polarisation um, in in society between the people who really know how stuff works and the people who just like to to shout about it. And it's like it's like the kind of. Uh, the difference between campaigning and, and governing um, those two skills are really kind of pulled mm. apart now so brilliant campaigners are getting into office with no idea how, how to govern and people who are really, really good at governing can no longer communicate uh, uh, the, you know, the, the importance of what they're doing
3: Wow. Well, that, that's all we've got time for in this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone um, about it. Uh, if you want to get in touch, suggest a topic for a future episode, then you can email us at rsa.radio at rsa.org.uk. You can find us. You can psychologically profile us on uh, Twitter. Ian uh, is at Mr. Ian Leslie, and I'm at RSA uh, Matthew. Just on future topics, one thing I want to pick out today, I'd love to do something on the polarization between people who think that they're like our centrist dads who you know are rational and reasonable versus people who actually think that being really passionate is an important thing because we're in danger of a certain smugness it I seems th- to me so let's I'm let's get someone dangerous let's get an extremist in to give us a hard time Absolutely. that's what I, I want to do but, but but other people send in your ideas polarized was presented by Ian Leslie by me Matthew Taylor uh, thanks to Adana Mark Brummy Tom and Laura from the RSA for lending their voices to this episode the producer was James shield and we were were brought to you by the RSA.